Weird thing happened yesterday. My son and I went uh, for a little early Father's Day outing to uh, the movie theater to see The Incredibles 2, which, this is not the Lord but I, was a solid sequel and very fun. But on the way in, while we were standing in line to buy our tickets... Something strange happened. Now, I had been spending the morning going over this very passage, Rome, or Acts 2, 42 through 47. I had been uh, looking again at the original language. I had been reading through some of the notes I had taken and, and thinking about what was worth saying this morning and what wasn't. And as I was sitting there in line, I was kind of still thinking about it, and I looked up, and I saw seven people, which is the, the perfect number, on their way out. All seven of them wearing t-shirts. Different colors, but the same t-shirt. I could tell because on the back of the shirt, they all had the same thing. Some were adults, some were kids. And I looked closer. And I kid you not, on the back of each shirt, it said Acts 2, 42 through 47, and had the whole text. And I thought, what is going on? Am I, am I having a vision? Is this real? And then I remembered there's a church in town and also in Brighton and Saginaw and, and a couple other places called 242 Church. And I usually kind of snicker at these like hip, new, weird church names like Tapestry and, you know, The Bunker or whatever. But I, I got to admit, that's a good church name because they've named their church after this passage. What the church is to do when they come together. Acts 242 it's a newish church. Pray for it. It seems to have a lot going on, and people are coming to faith there. Who wouldn't darken the doors of a church-looking church? It's, a, it's kind of a, a cool thing, but it made me stop and think, wow, this stuff, it's still happening. It's not just happening here and there, but all over the world to this very day, these very activities that we read about millennia ago. And you know, when we read through Acts, there's an awful lot about people coming to faith, sometimes in droves, like we read about in verse 41. They received the word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls to their number. Sometimes it's one-on-one, -on -one, one by one, but they're coming to faith. And then we read about all these miraculous things, signs and wonders, martyrdoms, audiences before kings and governors. But this is one of the few descriptions of the everyday. What are these people doing? How are they living? Now that they've repented, have, have been saved and baptized. What was church life like for the first Christians? And we find the answer here. It's brief. A few quick statements creating kind of a composite sketch, if you will, of the life of the church in these earliest days. And it's not a perfect church. We don't want to idealize it and say we got to get back to exactly doing everything that way. It wasn't perfect. We find that there were hypocrites there. There was false doctrine popping up time and again. We find that there were internal squabbles. And yet, here we see described the best and purest of those first days after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. We need to read these words today. It is an antidote to the individualism that, that just, I think it's a plague on the church. There's a rugged individualism that is, is one of the strengths of our nation and, and our history. But when we come and bring it into the church and our, our attitude to everything is, I can handle that myself. 
well, then we're going to fall quickly away. We see that they were coming into a community. They didn't get saved and baptized and say, oh, that was a cool day, and then just go back to life as it was, only maybe a little more self-actualized and a little more spiritual. No, they were baptized into a body. Those who believed and were baptized formed a community. And that community met together regularly. The first thing we see here is that they were devoted. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. See, casual Christianity is an absolute absurdity. We see it everywhere, but it makes no sense. This, this way of life, this, this whole life worldview and philosophy that says, I pick up my cross every morning, prepared to go to my death for this thing, I'm sort of into it. This thing that says, lay down every thought captive, every word, everything, every affection, every drive. I mean, I'm not a fanatic about it, but yeah, I've got, you know, I, I dabble. No, th- there's devotion here. And it doesn't just say they were devoted. This is, here's something for you, a little present active participle. Meaning we should probably translate it, they were devoting themselves. It's ongoing. It's a continuous present tense. They were devoting themselves to what? To four things. Hey, that'll make a sermon outline. What are those four things? Number one, the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. I almost said first and foremost, but that would be redundant. We've been talking in in Sunday school about how word order means so much, especially in these lists and things. In in the Greek, in the Hebrew, they didn't yet have control B for bold, and word order often was most important to show you emphasis. What's first here? It's the apostles' teaching. And yet rarely is that the first thing that people will say when they're commending a church to someone. Oh, you should go there. It's amazing. Well, yeah, what's amazing about it? Oh, it's vibrant, it's friendly, it's welcoming, it's exciting, it's cutting edge, it's relevant, it's relaxed, whatever they say. Rarely would someone say, it's devoted to the apostles' teaching. And yet a learning, studying congregation is always the mark of a spirit-filled church in the Scriptures. Learning and studying. We might say a doctrinal, or doctrinal if we're less pretentious, A doctrinal church is a mark of being filled with the Spirit. What did they devote themselves to? We could translate this, the apostles' doctrine. Today, I think it's very popular to say, oh, no, 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 we're all about relationships, not about all that dusty doctrine. But read through Acts. It's Acts 17, and we read that the Bereans were more noble than others because they were constantly checking the doctrine studying the scriptures, making sure that these things were as the apostles said. We look at those seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 and 2, where, where there are Jesus writes, or he dictates, and John writes down seven letters to seven churches, and we look at them, and, and many of them could be commended with some of those words that I used earlier. In Pergamum, they, they, they were welcoming, they were tolerant, they were even indulgent, and yet... Their doctrine was a disaster. They were heretical. And Jesus, he he says there's condemnation waiting if you do not fix this. In Laodicea, they're a one-stop shop. Everything you might need is there. They're self-sufficient. They're rich. They've got beautiful facilities. And yet, he says, you're lukewarm. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. 
In Sardis, they had a reputation for life. Programs everywhere. It was the church of what's happening now. And yet, he says, inside you're dead. Even Ephesus, which is the church that's told you've lost your first love. Many people say, you see, in Ephesus, they were all about doctrine. And that, that was their problem. No, 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 no. That's the one good thing Jesus says about that church. Yeah, you've got, you've got good teaching. You don't fall into the traps of these false teachers. He's not telling them be less doctrinal. He's saying live out your doctrine with love or it's worthless. Jesus spent most of his time during his earthly ministry teaching. So following Jesus meant learning for hours a day. Learning at the feet of the master. I'm always confused when people think they can follow Jesus today without learning, without study, without devotion to the Word, without devotion to the apostles' teaching, what Jude will call the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We've got it right here. And if we are to be a true church, a a Spirit-filled church, we will be devoted and we will be devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. This continues to be central throughout the New Testament. When we read the qualifications of an elder, there are an awful lot of things listed that have to do with character or reputation, but the only ability that is required is the ability to teach. The book of Acts clearly portrays the desire to learn, the desire for teaching and doctrine as an evidence of conversion. Hey, how about if I embarrass you, David? I've been texting with David now and again. He says to me the other day, I've been watching sermons for the last several hours, and I've been reading the scriptures today, and these words just made me ecstatic and sad at the same time. I'm still thirsty. And I thought, that is so amazing. God, give me that. So that that I I can be in the Word for hours and go, oh, I still want more. I still want more. I am hungering and thirsting after your word. They devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves. We we so often want the shortest, little, quickest, so that I can say, check mark, yes, I did my devotions. A little crouton, not a big loaf of bread. I don't want our daily crouton. I want our daily bread. And I want to sit at the feet of the master and learn. And some say, oh, I don't have time for that. You don't have time not to sit at the feet of the master. We, we will make time for whatever is most important to us. We will make time for Jesus if we are devoted to him. Looking back, it's clear that the dry ages of the church have corresponded to the neglecting of God's word and the neglecting of sound doctrine. And at the greatest periods of revival, yes, they've been a lot lot about prayer, and we'll get to that in a minute, but they've also been about turning to the pages of God's Word with a hunger. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. The word here in the Greek, you already know if you've been in the church very long, it's koinonia. Say that with me. Koinonia. It's a fun one to say. It means a close bond among people. There's a certain intimacy. Luke only uses this word once. Paul uses it all the time. It's one of his favorites. It describes the unique sharing that Christians have with each other because we have in common an experience of God and a sharing with God. I'm sure you've experienced this. 
where you don't know somebody, and yet because you're both believers, there is a bond. That's amazing when that happens. I remember Aaron and I were somewhere up north years and years ago, and we went to, there was this little place called the Shrine of the Unborn, and we said, I've heard of that. We drove in there. It was, uh, it was run by some little order of something or other, and we were wandering around going, we don't know where we're going. And a woman came out and said, hi, can I help you? I said, oh, we just, we're, I'm a Baptist uh, minister, and this is my wife, we're just, just kind of here to visit. And she ran over and embraced us and hugged us like we were old friends, and it didn't feel weird and put on. It was genuine. It was, it was our, we haven't met yet, but this is a reunion. Because of this life we have, and, and, and maybe you've experienced the opposite, where you're with Christians, and there, there isn't really any bond, and you wonder, why is that? Is it me? Is it them? Is, it, is there something going on here where we need to pray together, or someone's neglecting the fellowship? They were devoting themselves to fellowship. John Stott, he said the word fellowship was born on the day of Pentecost. What he meant by that was not that the word wasn't around yet, but that it had now new meaning. 1 John 1.3, we read, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because we all have fellowship with Him, we have fellowship with one another. Koinonia. And I think we ought to probably translate this, as some have, as common life. Fellowship sounds like something you do for ten minutes and then it's over. That's not what we're talking about in Acts. Common life, and I, I mean, that's it's a very wooden translation. Uh, when I was in seminary, I studied Koine Greek, and I've been studying a lot lately. It's very exciting. Not classical Greek, the really hoity-toity ivory tower stuff of, of Plato and Aristotle. Koine Greek is common Greek. This is the, the language of the day. Common, Koine, common, koinonia, common life. There's another word that's incredibly similar. Koinonikos, which means generous. And, and this is something that is vital. Churches, big and small, struggle to establish and develop this, but it is vital that we have this generous, common life together. That we don't see this as a place where we all come together and we all have the vertical relationship with God next to each other, and that's it. The vertical and the horizontal, they relate to each other. And the closer we are vertically to God, the more we will be close to each other. We see that here. And the more people say to themselves, you know, I think the church is kind of just full of jerks and hypocrites, and I'm going to take a step back and distance myself, the quicker they begin to drift away from God. His design is that we will love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other as we love ourselves. We see another aspect of this in verses 44 and 45, after he has gone through all these things that they devoted themselves to, he gives us some more details. We read, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We'll be looking much more closely at this phenomenon in chapter 4 in a little while. But it's mentioned here, so we need to mention it as well. All I'll say is that this is not communism, a forced sharing. Rather, what we see here comes not from a law forcing from without, but a new heart compelling from within. Yes, they all still had their own homes. We read that in this passage. 
When we get to Ananias and Sapphira, they were free to keep those fields. No, this is generosity. Koinonikos, it's common life, koinonia. They're willing to sacrifice for the church. And that, that sacrifice, it touched every area of life. It, it touched the pocketbook and the balance sheet. We'll see that it touched the pantry and the dinner table and the home. It wasn't segmented into one little area of my week, one little part of my character. It was all-encompassing. And when we compare the way the apostles were pre-Pentecost to this, it's amazing. Arguing over who is the greatest, who will have the biggest portion and the highest position in the kingdom when it comes, and now that they have the Holy Spirit, it's the opposite. Who can be the servant of all? Jesus said that is the greatest in the kingdom, the one who is the servant of all, the least of all. We've seen this. I've seen this so many times right here. I've seen people dig down deep to help other people. I could go listing names and names and names and names, but it was always given with the condition of anonymity. But people, even outside of our, our regular uh, kind of apparatus for giving and helping, when someone's in need, coming up alongside, maybe with money that is needed, maybe with time and effort, you know, we've been meeting a lot at the church lately. I've been having meeting and meeting and meeting. And I noticed this thing uh, with Lisa's always there because she's the head of the elders. And she's been looking kind of bad lately. And I was like, is she okay? Is she ill? And then I find out later. I'm like, no, no, no. She's just been coming from somewhere every time I see her. She's been painting a house over here for someone who needed help. She's been moving someone over here. She's been packing someone over here. Why does she look a little tired? She's a little tired. And it's good. This is koinonia. This is common life. Life together. You look lovely today, by the way, Lisa. <laughs> this, this is, though, going, even, even being in each other's homes, helping. And we see in 46, verse 46, they were in each other's homes, breaking bread from house to house with glad and generous hearts. So they're gathering together, as we're told a little earlier, in large groups, in the temple courts, in, in the courtyards of wealthy Christians. We know that from, from tradition and scripture. But also, we're told here informally, as small groups around the dinner table, on the roof, that would be their thing. For us, it'd be maybe in the backyard or in the living room. And when they gathered, they shared meals and they fellowshiped with glad and generous hearts. I think one of the most important things for the growth of a new believer is to become established in this kind of common life. And it's so hard in a world that's so individualistic. But I have taken to, when, I, when I'm, I'm going to camp in a couple weeks, this will be year 19 as camp pastor for 7th and 8th graders. And, and I'll tell you what, I only realized in the last 7 or 8 years, I needed to take the last session, the last time I got to teach, and always emphasize, if you don't have a church home, find one. You don't have a youth group you're part of, find one. You guys can't do this by yourselves. Christianity is not some Lone Ranger thing. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, though, and he wasn't exactly alone, right? We need each other. We need people, need people. That's all. We're only in chapter 2, and that's come up three times now in the book of Acts. We need one another. We see this happening in the, the early church. One of the most consistent themes. And it's possible to be part of a church and still not have this kind of relationship, 
of common life. And, of, and it's hard. We have to establish. We have to do what we, what we can, whatever it takes as a church to make this sort of thing happen. We see throughout the New Testament, if you're reading your King James Bible, you can tell when uh, just one person, you, is being addressed, and when many people, you, are being addressed. And you start to see, wow, most of the time, it's a group, a church, a fellowship, a family, a community that's being addressed, consoled, taught, exhorted. And so getting, quote, more plugged in with a congregation or meeting regularly with Christians outside of the Sunday morning setting, it's not extra credit for the Christian life, those who are really serious. It is the Christian life in many ways. John Wesley said, The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. This is something that happens in community. And, and table fellowship is emphasized here. Recognize that this was a big deal in this context, in this culture. That's why they freaked out on Jesus when he ate together with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. You're eating with them? You're having table fellowship? Christianity has taken that and emphasized it through the ages. Our highest right is modeled after a meal. Jesus taught while they were eating together. He prepared meals for his disciples, and and many of his, his miracles before and after the resurrection had to do with the sharing of food and on more than one occasion, the literal breaking of bread. In fact, Jesus enjoyed his meals so much, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. This is indeed weird in our individualistic world. It's almost a cliche at this point to point it out, but I'll point it out. We live in a world where we're all more connected than ever, connected by these little things in our pockets that connect us via pictures that are very carefully crafted and photoshopped, 10-second videos, 280 characters at a time, but we're not really connected. People feel more isolated and disconnected than ever. And that's okay. In fact, it's good because the church is called to be the counterculture that comes in and says, yes, you do need this. This is what you should want and need, or at least it's what you need to want and let us offer it. I've, I remember I was watching a, a program about a, a very, very major cult uh, working its way through our country. It's having a resurgence right now. And people who had come out of it said, this is how I got in. I was at a low point in my life, and I had nothing, and I had no one, and I was sitting alone in my house, and someone came and knocked on my door and said, God loves you. And here's a book, and here's a group, and here's someone who will care about you. And I said, okay, I'm not even going to look in the scriptures or anywhere to see if these things really are so. I'm just going to say, hey, if you will have me, if you'll give me some love, some attention, some care, if you care about me, I'm in. Well, Jesus, they're stealing that from the church. Jesus told us that was our job to love, to welcome to be the hands and feet of the Savior who welcomed everyone, who, who embraced the broken. Our world is very different today, and, and, and it's, it's hard to see how we apply some of these things. In a world where you move from here to there, across the country with ease, where people change churches when we get bored, where, where people even change spouses if things are going wrong, without much trying even sometimes. And yet, in the church we see modeled, especially here in Acts, a devotion to the community. Sadly, people are more devoted to their sports teams, I think, than to their community these days. And yet, when you zoom in on the sports team, you find 
These people aren't even from this city. And a year from now, they might be traded somewhere else. They're in the church must be a commitment to a body, a congregation, a family. And it's, it's weird these days to even talk this way, and we can either despair because all of this change is happening around us so quickly, or we can see it as a great opportunity. That we can become a place where people who are feeling isolated despite all their 794 friends on Facebook can truly belong. Where we can hold each other up, build each other up, and spur one another on to good works. But they were in each other's homes. How did I get off track there? I don't know. They were in each other's homes. And you know, I've heard it said, I've said myself, we'd, we'd have more people in our home if I had a full-time housekeeper who could keep the place presentable, right? It's a little embarrassing sometimes. There's, you know, papers and mail all over, and, and you know, the laundry is piled up at the foot of my bed, so if anyone peeked in my bedroom, they'd go, oh, good grief. Hey, that's pride. That's pride, Right? That, that, that says, I need to continue this, this fiction I'm creating online with the pictures and videos that I very carefully select and share. I need to continue that, that illusion that I'm perfect into real life, not just with strangers, if I'm showing my house, but with friends, or rather with the family that is my church family. We need to repent of that. Karen Maines wrote that hospitality comes before pride in a chapter of a book that was all about how she got over this hang-up with, I can't have people in here because. We see that in the Scripture, the setting, the surroundings, the food itself, they're all secondary. Jesus had to teach Martha that, remember? She was, oh, everything's not perfect. He said, listen, there's a better portion right now. Your sister sitting at my feet. She's focusing on what is better in this moment. And when we gather together, when we're in each other's homes, we we focus on what is more important. And that is the Word of Christ given for us. In In the New International Version, I think we have a good translation here of they met together in each other's homes, breaking bread with glad and sincere hearts. If you look at that word sincere, it actually indicates simplicity, singleness of heart, a lack of pretense. We're not focused on all this stuff and, oh, I forgot to... No, we're focused on Christ. Together. Now, we get to the third thing they focused on. They devoted themselves to. And I think three and four are actually examples of this fellowship. How they played themselves out. And when we look grammatically at this verse, I won't bore you with it, but I think this very clearly is there's fellowship. It looks like this and this. The breaking of bread and the prayers. They, they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, and there's much ink spilled on this. If you want to get into a wormhole on the internet, you can, and you can read about this for days at a time. What exactly is meant here? Many have said that, that there must be two different things being described if in verse 42 and verse 46 we have the breaking of bread. Otherwise, it's redundant. And there's something to be said for that. Because in verse 42... We read the breaking of the bread or the breaking of the loaf. In verse 46, they're just breaking bread together. Some have argued then that in verse 46, it's ordinary meals. In verse 42, the thing they devoted themselves to was the Lord's Supper. And that makes sense because the other three things they devoted themselves to are all spiritual pursuits. So we would expect that this one would be as well. And in the Christian church, 
What is the spiritual significance of breaking bread? Well, it is the body of Christ broken for us, commemorated in the sacrament. Scripture tells us that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Jesus' death and a participation in His body and His blood. And in 1 Corinthians 10, where we read that, a participation in His body and His blood, here's the Greek for you, a koinonia in His body and His blood. A common experience together of Christ's death and all the benefits thereof, according to our confession. But even if both of these refer just to ordinary meals, we know if we keep reading 1 Corinthians, and if we read James and other, other passages in the New Testament, that when they got together and had a meal, what happened is these became agape feasts, love feasts. And at the end of them, they would have the Lord's Supper. And so some people are even chastised and rebuked because they're eating and drinking so much that they're drunk by the time they get to the Lord's Supper and taking it in an unworthy manner. So either way, we see both the informal eating together, fellowship together, and the formal worship in the form of Holy Communion, one with another. Both are happening. And that brings us to the last, the fourth of these things, to prayer, or again, to the prayers. You might write that in your margin. There is the article before prayers. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Something formal is being described here. And that doesn't mean that everyone's wearing a tuxedo and a cummerbund, but rather that there is a form to it. What's being described is liturgy. The first thing we're told is they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The Didache Ton Apostolon. And you know, we actually have, this is wild, a book that was discovered relatively recently in church history called the Didache Ton Dodeca Apostolon, the, the teaching of the twelve apostles. And it starts laying out an early liturgy. I mean, Jesus gives us a formal prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. In the Didache, it's from the first century, decades after this at most, we read that we should use the, third, the, the, the uh, Lord's Prayer three times a day. That that is the recommendation, to pray the Lord's pray, Prayer three times, morning, noon, and night. And then as we read the rest of the New Testament, more prayers are added. We see passages from early Christian hymns. There is formal worship. Baptists often react harshly against this. We don't have any liturgy. No, 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 no. We don't do that. We just come together on Sundays and have an invocation and then there's a prelude, then we sing a hymn, then we read a passage from the King James Bible, and then another hymn, and then there's a sermon, and once a month we have communion. Yeah, that's called a liturgy, an order of service. There was formal worship, and we see them gathering in the place of formal worship, in the temple courts, according to verse 46. There's probably a couple reasons. One, it can accommodate everyone, all the Christians at this point. The 3,000 is probably happening in the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles probably, and when they would pack them in for a big festival, that could accommodate 200,000 people. So that's no problem whatsoever. But also, this is the place where teaching and fellowship and prayer ordinarily happen. And so those 3,000 who we just read about in verse 41, they immediately learn, not just by being told, but by praxis, by doing that communal prayer is a key tenet of the Christian faith. In fact, it wasn't even called the Christian faith yet, but they're already completely submerged in prayer. In many churches today, new converts don't learn that at all. They might 
absorb something else, that the, the main pastime in the church is social activities or gossip or committee meetings or something else. That was not the case in the early church. They were devoting themselves to prayer. One of you told me this week that you spend two hours a day in prayer and Bible reading. And I even believed you. And I'll tell you what, it's one of the most busy and one of the most accomplished people in this sanctuary. You see, Luther had it right when he said, I have so much to do today that I can afford to spend no less than three hours in prayer. Prayer is the fuel that drives us as Christians. And when I look back at my own life, the times I've neglected prayer are the times I have run out of steam, come to a stop, and said, what's going on? Well, I'm so busy, I'd better, I'd better even devote less time to prayer and Bible reading. I haven't got time for that. We need to look to prayer as the fuel for our very lives. And so we see they were devoted to these four things. And they were meeting together. They were meeting in, in general for, for fellowship and food and fun. They were meeting formally for the prayers and for the Lord's Supper. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and studying. And then we see their response to all this stuff that was happening here in the book of Acts. In verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's often a question that I will hear. Why do you think that we hear about miracles happening all the time in China? All the time in, in a predominantly Muslim countries where the church is persecuted or where, where they're struggling and, and not here. And sometimes I hear people say it's because we don't need the miracles, and they do. But I think a better answer is it's because we don't expect the miracles. And they do. Because we can explain everything, right? And, and between our technology and our, our social methods, we can accomplish practically anything. And so we don't think we need, and we don't think we should expect to see God doing great things. If there's any one takeaway from the book of Acts, perhaps it is expect miracles when you are living as a spirit-filled Christian in a spirit-filled church. Expect miracles. And yeah, there are a lot of charlatans that are out there doing crazy stuff and fooling people. We want to distance ourselves from that. But we're going to run into some phonies in the book of Acts, too. And that did not stop the apostles who had witnessed the resurrection from trusting God to be able to accomplish more than they could ever ask or expect. Are we ready to experience awe at what God is doing? If we come to Him in prayer, and when we study His Word, and when we meet together, and when we build each other up, and when we take part in the Lord's Supper, we find ourselves prepared for God to be greatly at work, mightily at work in our midst. This passage begins and ends with descriptions of great growth. Those who received His Word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's almost like a sandwich. The, the, the slices of bread on the outside are these statements about great growth in the church, but inside is the meat. We want the outside, but it, it's often perhaps too difficult, and 
we don't, we don't have time for the inside. Notice inside, it's, this, is, this is ham and cheese. This is not some silver bullet, some program, some strategy that can be implemented for instant results. This is a lifestyle. This is koinonia, common life. This is gathering together in prayer, gathering together for the Lord's Supper, gathering together both formally and informally to read God's Word. And then we see the response of those around them, that they, they had favor having favor with all men, with all the people. Some have suggested a better translation would be having goodwill toward all the people. It's possible, but I think it's a bit of a cop-out. We say, well, I mean, people aren't going to like us. Jesus warned us of that. We'll see that. I mean, look at at, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of this execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We see that, yes, there's often a honeymoon period where the church is uh, celebrated at times, and then after it comes persecution, just like Jesus was praised with Hosanna, Hosanna, and then later that week, crucify him, crucify him. But whatever the case uh, here, whether it's goodwill toward people or goodwill from the people, notice that Peter's preaching, yes, leads to this mass conversion in verse 41, but then we are told all about the lifestyle of the church. And that seems to be the engine that continues the ongoing conversions of people to the Christian faith. And even more important, notice who it is adding to their number. Is it them? Is it the apostles? Is it the people in the church? No. God added day by day to their number. Sometimes we will go out and proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly. Sometimes you will say to your coworker or your unbelieving friend or neighbor or family member, this is what Jesus has done for you, and in that moment they will reject it. Sometimes they will embrace it. God is the one who saves Sometimes we will feel that we have goodwill from all the people, and sometimes we'll feel very alone, and we'll have to remind ourselves that we're not. We have a family, and we have the Holy Spirit always with us. It's much like being magnetized. I think that's a great, a great picture, illustration of being filled with the Holy Spirit. When an object, a metal object, is magnetized, it doesn't look different. Same color, same shape, same density. If you were to hold it in your hands, same weight, and yet, there's been a change. There are new properties. There are, there are new attractions. There are new effects. And in us, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, people look at us, and from outside, hey, we look, I'm the same shape, sadly, as always. And, and yet, we have new properties, new attractions, new affections. Our hearts desire new things, not the old things of the old self. We have a new effect. And just like with something that's been magnetized, the effect is different. Some things are attracted. Some things are indifferent to the magnetism. Some are repulsed. But when someone comes to faith, because our preaching has been held up by our lifestyle, it's God who has done a great work. And we, who should, like this early church, stand in awe of it. I have more written down, but I'm going to stop. Let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen here in this passage. The ordinary stuff. Lord, in a book that is essentially an adventure story with shipwrecks 
and tragic deaths and, and nail-biting escapes, we are thankful for a passage that just describes the day-by-day. Day. And we pray that we would be faithful as your church in the day-by-day. Day. That, Lord, we would worship you formally here at the altar in, in the prayers that we pray together, in the Lord's Prayer, that we would worship You in the hymns and songs and spiritual psalms, and, and Lord, that we would worship You in these ways, and that we would also be in common life together, encouraging each other, in each other's homes, lifting each other up, serving each other, willing to have all things in common with one another, not wanting to put on a show or a front, but willing to be honest and vulnerable and to show each other we're all servants. We're all, we're all pilgrims on the same path. And Lord, that we would live this life together, not trying to do it individualistically, not trying to do it by our own strength, but recognizing that the same Spirit is in all of us, that we have a common Savior and a common life. In your holy name we pray. Amen.